Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Today's episode is going to be, I can commit, this is going to be a good one and, and pretty different than most of the episodes of the show. And, and part of the reason for that is my guest today is JT Harden. And JT and I met when I was like 26 or 27 years old. And he was like 23 or 24. And uh, he has become one of the biggest and uh, most successful songwriters in, in country music, though he's had hits in other genres too. Um, he has written songs that you know that Kenny Chesney has sang, like Somewhere With You. He wrote Somewhere In My Car with Keith Urban after meeting him at a urinal. It, JT wrote and carried around for years the Uncle Cracker song, Smile, <laughs> trying to get some kind of traction with it. He wrote Sangria, the Blake Shelton song, and he wrote Beers and Sunshine. The guy didn't just have hits 10 years ago. I mean, he had the biggest hit of last summer with Beers and Sunshine uh, with our friend, with my pal Darius Rucker. And But before all that, JT and I had some history together. And JT has written a book, and this book is excellent. It's called Party Like a Rockstar, which is also the title of one of his songs that was like the number one song on uh, Sirius for a long time. And also... JT, you can hold up that book, but this is an audio podcast, so holding it up. <laughs> I have a faith. It's really a shame because I'm wearing, you know, I like my money where I can see it hanging in my closet. I've got my leopard suit on. I'm dancing around. But I wish you could see Brian smiling because it's so great to see each other. I got to tell you, man, success looks good on you, my friend. Congrats. Uh, for every with everything you've done over the years. And to those of you just tuning in, if you're in your car, honk your horn. If you're at work, drum on your desk. And if you're still in bed, dance on your back. This is the moment, 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 moment. Woo! This is, guys, folks, listen, here's the thing. JT has always been a larger than life character. But in his new memoir, Party Like a Rockstar, he tells the most, really, just the most incredible story of persistence commitment to the to commitment to the bit which if you saw him now in his leopard skin jacket and tie and telling you to honk your horn you would know but i am i am a character in his memoir and i'm one of the bad guys because i signed him to a record deal and the record never came out and uh over the years i've reached out to jt to talk about this and uh i'm really glad that we're gonna end up doing it with microphones because it was Man, it was a fascinating experience, you know, reading. I filled in so much of the story from your perspective, of course, over the years, over the 25 years since or more. But here, reading it from your perspective um, was really a, a fascinating thing. And of course, uh, I felt really bad, as I did then, about the way all that shit went down. You know. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Listen, we were really young at that time. So Brian signed me. I met him at Tower Records. He signed me to my first record deal. And I didn't know at that time, as much as at all the interviews I've read with Kiss and David Lee Roth, I didn't realize that in the record business, a lot of records don't come out. You can't really control all of this stuff. So you did change my life. We made two records and I was able to quit the record store and continue on my journey. So it really, you changed my life in the best way, but writing the book, I did, I had to dig deep and remember that I was kind of mad, but I know you did everything you could. And I, you know, I don't, 
It just, it is what it is. You know, as I say in the book, what doesn't kill you will make your song stronger. And Brian, look at, I didn't have to look for it. Sitting behind me amongst all these awards and fun things, my Darius Rucker beers and sunshine koozie is the cassette from the album we made together. I don't even have a cassette player of uh, Camaro town right there. I'm holding it up for those of you that can't well, see Well, the it. amazing thing is you should put it out sometime. We should get it back for you. But the amazing thing to me is, um, so I'll, I'll give some insight into this to, to the people, but I really want to tell you, tell your story. Um, yeah, as you say in the book, it was toward the end of my time in the record business because I had gotten to a place where there was such a disconnect between the business part and my own empathy for and affinity for the artists. And it was, it had become untenable really, you know, to try to balance that stuff out. I will say that in the book, you make it like, you made this record in two weeks and we ghosted you, but we did try to re-record and make an entirely new second album. We did, yeah. I love that you said you ghosted. To leave, you happen to leave that part out. That, yeah, yes. that it, We didn't just make an album and then say, no, we made two albums to try to get it right. Yeah, we did, we did. And by the way, you know what else isn't in the book? I mean, I say in the book, or maybe not, but you know, I tell people that ask me for advice, you know, my heart's been broken more than the ice cream machine at McDonald's, but I've done my share of heartbreaking and I've done my share of firing a manager or two who maybe didn't deserve it. But it's interesting when you're writing a book and they, well, they say, well, take that out forward the narrative. So we're, we're all, listen, you can't, it's these moments of things not working out that create a life and get you to where you you need to be. You can't have the beauty without the blemish. You know, that should be a new uh, I basically, yes, but I want to get a little <laughs> bit unsticky. Let's get a little unsticky here because I'll tell you, the book, there's a lot of colorful language and it's super fucking fun to read. But you really do go deep into talking about why all this mattered and matters so much to you. Can you talk a little bit? Let's start by just talking a little bit, man. Because I never saw anybody want it more than you. I mean, maybe one other person I've ever seen who wanted this more. Like, nobody I've ever met really felt like, no, no, I have to be a songwriter and a musician yes. from my life. There's, I have to be in show business. I am show business. Like, So can you just talk about why rock and roll, Kiss, how it started to take you over and kind of who you were in Michigan at the time when when it when it hit you man where you where you found yourself yes brian these are these are great questions and i'll try to tell it the best i can so i was adopted born in nashville but i like to say i was born and raised in south detroit so my family moved to Mash, uh, michigan i was adopted by the best parents you could ever imagine Larry and Kendra Harding. And my dad was as, as big as the Jurassic Park gates. You know, he was a giant <laughs> football coach at Michigan State. He scored a touchdown in the Rose Bowl before I was born. Big sports family. But I just always remember loving music. And they encouraged me. Certainly, I got in trouble for sneaking out and, and this and that. I loved listening to the radio. I discovered Kiss. I thought Aliens had landed the first time I saw Kiss Alive 2. I would jump around with a hockey stick for a guitar. Just I don't even know how I knew how to imitate Kiss. There wasn't the internet. I saw them on Kids or People too, and I just I, I just couldn't believe it. I would go to the radio station. My dad worked at the talk radio station, but I knew the rock station was there. I went to work with him. I would sit over there. So I think it was already taking me over. And then, how old were you? Like how old were you at this time? Oh, so I was born in the early 70s, so I'm probably six, seven, like Star yeah, Wars. Yeah, so like six, seven years old, you like, 
you your your north star becomes rock and roll in some it in does some and i know you asked me when it took me over i i it probably took me over when kiss came but i don't and i think i was like i want to do this and then when MTV came out, I, I say, and, and I like what you're saying, I'm trying not to be too sticky, but I love these examples. I felt like Dorothy in black and white Kansas, yes. landing in Oz, you have Madonna in a wedding dress like a virgin, Michael Jackson lighting the sidewalk up, my new heroes, Van Halen, smashing a gong that's on yes. fire, David Lee Roth like Tarzan. And then you combine that love of music colliding with the first kissing and the first falling in love with girls at the dance. I just, I wanted to, I just, all these emotions collided and I'm like, I've got to be on MTV. This is a magic world because I thought it was all real. I, I mean, I didn't know they were on a set somewhere. How do we sure. do this? Thought backwards. Well, we got to put a band together. We got to write songs. We're going to get on the radio. So that's how it all kind of started. And I'm very lucky. I grew up in Gross Point and they had a battle of bands and they had a talent show. And yes, we did win them all. And uh, I couldn't play guitar. I couldn't play drums. I couldn't play bass, but I could pose. So I was the singer. Go ahead. But you could. But 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 I I I one of the things that I was really touched by in reading the book was it's almost like a, a movie character who falls into fantasy as a way to have a comfortable landing place from a life that's got certain challenges to it. I mean, you very dramatically, you know, talk about the death of your big brother and yep. and how, and it seems, you, know, you don't draw the line exactly, exactly directly. It, it almost seems like this thing happens. Your, your dad makes this amazing choice to like live for the kids who are still there you, you and and you describe that very beautifully in the book, but it did did seem to me that this fantasy life you had, in a way, was the protective thing over your soul because you didn't fit in in the normal ways. Exactly. Is that right? Yes, and I and I didn't mean to skip over it, but what Brian's uh, talking about when I was in sixth grade, I still I liked music, but I probably wasn't as obsessed with it. I had an older brother who passed away. And, you know, that's what's great about the book, because most of my best friends in Nashville don't even know about that. And they're kind of bummed that I didn't bring it up to them. But I've never really learned how to talk about it. But sitting in the glow of the computer during quarantine, this is my story, I'm going to tell it. But I'm sure you're so right that I, I was just looking for what made me feel the best music being in the band. And my best friends to this day, and also one of the guys I made the band with was friends with my older brother. And then we all morphed into becoming friends. So I'm sure all of that is absolutely right. And then I went out to Los Angeles when I would look on my CDs and they all said, or cassettes, they all said Sunset Boulevard, even though, you know, I didn't want to move to New York because I didn't have any money. I knew I'd be freezing. <laughs> if you're going to be a starving artist, do it in the sun. Oh, in California. That's, yeah. another, that's another quote I stole from someone. Uh, so yeah, I definitely had ambition. I don't know exactly where that comes from, but everything you're, you're saying is correct. I'm sure, I'm sure I was escaping a life, even though the house was great and my parents were great. I just loved music, and I wanted. You know, to I was talking to I was talking to Steve Van Zant recently, and and I read his book, which is fucking phenomenal. You should read it. And but he talks about how he and Bruce, and Bruce talks about it in his book too. How like there were these three or four years where they listened to every record ever made, and they listened so closely, and they studied it so deeply, and that that was kind of like. From doing that is how they learn to then become these great songwriters because they internalized it the way the Beatles internalized it in, in Hamburg. And do you think 
because you've always had like these, even when your craft wasn't as tight as it is now, you always had the ability to write choruses that were, and in the book, you really break down how you think about it analytically. But I wonder if the analytic understanding came after the sort of gut understanding of it. And do you think all that watching of it, because you just say in the book you watched like, you go, we had this tragedy whatever, nobody was watching me and I spent two years basically just reading, watching MTV. Yes, yes. Uh, you're so right. I think I had an early instinct. I need, we as a band or whatever, I need to write my own songs because I don't want to end up at the local Holiday Inn on an unglamorous corner of Detroit singing Brown Eyed Girl. I knew early on I didn't want to do that. And listen, there's no magic button to songwriting. I'd have a lot more hits if there, if there, if there was such a thing. But yeah, I would break down songs. I would listen. I didn't discover Springsteen until later, but I would study his songs like other people study uh, the stock market. And I would say, oh, listen to how the changes happen. Oh, look at how he flips the title at the at the at the end of the song. It has a new meaning because now it's not about a car. It's about a girl. So I did study all that. But I, it's not so much. It sounds kind of nerdy when we explain it. Like if you could just study a song and it become, would become a hit, boy, I wish it was that easy. But I had an instinct to write songs, but I, I couldn't figure it out. I had to really live. You know, if I, was, if I was writing songs in high school about being in high school, I could have probably been the male Taylor Swift. But I was trying to copy Def Leppard and David Lee Roth, but I didn't know anything about that life. But once I started living, got my heart broken a few times, uh, which, which led me to you, you know? But that's no, that's really a deep, but that's a kind of the deep thing that you're saying, which is um, for all of the learning you were doing and all of the analyzing you were doing, it was like empty until you could put yourself in it. Yes. And smart enough to know to put yourself in it. And I'm not knocking Taylor Swift. That's a compliment. Like, for instance, when I tried to, my first song was called Lockjaw about this, uh, about the lifeguard with braces. If I, as a kid, if I had said, I passed a note in class, check yes or no. I probably could have been like a little eighth grade star in MTV, but I was trying to be a heavy metal guy. And I'm not sure if I put it in the book. I met Springsteen at Tower Records. I certainly don't know him. And I, I helped him find what he was looking for. And I said, hey, I, I, I study your songs. I'm trying to be a rock star. And I've learned from your songs. I'll never forget it. He looks over at me and he goes, enjoy, enjoy. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you put a few of these meetings. I, I wanted to ask you, you put a few of these meetings, like the meeting with Michael Jackson, the meeting with Prince in, in, the, in the book. And yeah. Um, chance meetings. Yeah, chance meetings. I didn't meet them at a board office. They would, I mean, a boardroom. They would, as you know, Brian, telling the listeners, they would come into the stores I was working at. And yes, I was beyond starstruck, but I, I would always kind of hide it. But go ahead. Yeah. Well, this is what I wanted to ask you. You've always been so taken with like the people who'd made it. You were so consumed with this idea, yes. right? Mm -hmm. Yet you would approach them, and it seems to me you kept two ideas in your head at the same time. One, wow, they're different than me, they're these special people, but two, I think I can be like them. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I don't know, I wish I could tell you where that comes from. I, I, don't, I don't really know. And by the way, what's funny about learning now I would always give my demo to any rock star I saw, George Michael, uh, Tom Petty, anyone I met. And I don't really know what, I thought they would just call up the president of the label and say, sign this kid. But I've learned that that's not really how it works. And now people give me, or they say, can I email you an MP3 or can you take my CD? And I'm always very flattered, but I think like, oh, wow, they, they think that I'm the, 
conduit to the big time, but it's not really how it works. They have to find their own tribe and come up together, you know, because I'm not well, a yeah, Talk about why you wrote the book, because you that's a great, you know, toward the end of the book, you get very, toward the end of the book, you kind of break stuff down in a way that I think can serve any aspiring artist. And yeah, one of the things you say is like, don't, don't try to leapfrog necessarily your peers, your group who are coming up when you are coming up because each group kind of like gathers around their own thing. My friend Mark Andreessen talks about it like these scenes show up and you got to be part of your scene. You you can't really jump into the the scene that was two before you. You're not no. welcome there yet. <laughs> yet. But, but what made you – what was it, JT, that, you know, you, you have – Beers and Sunshine comes out and is this – Massive success at the beginning of the pandemic or midway. What made you decide, I'm going to tell my story now? And who were you telling it for? The book. Yeah, great. So the so I was playing a uh, in Nashville. Uh, we do songwriter shows where you say, this is the song I wrote. This is how I got the title. And I tell funny stories. Then you play a hit. And then you play a song that's really sad. And then you end it with a joke. It's And I've done it everywhere. Um, Pre-pandemic, of course, the Bluebird Cafe here is very famous. They've sent Amazing. me to London a few times, New York, Sundance. So like all over Florida, I've played in every state. People love to come here. The songwriter shows, especially people that don't know what they are. They're like, what is this? And then they leave and they say, oh my gosh, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. And I say, you, you obviously never saw Prince down the right. purple tour. But anyway, <laughs> so I was playing a show in Nashville and a lady I'd never met before, but I saw a lot of people asking her for autograph. She's a, a newscaster. I didn't know her. Her name is Dana Perino. And she wrote me on Instagram and she said, I saw you at the listening room. Have you? It was unbelievable. Have you ever thought about writing a book? And I wrote her back and I said, oh, absolutely. You know, I just lied, Brian. <laughs> so she said, my husband and I were knocked out by you. Uh, I know I can get you a book deal. Can you write down some of your stories of your hits? So I wrote all the stories of the hits, but then I put in that I was adopted, that my brother passed away. And then I put in there advice that I think young, not young, old, middle, anywhere, anyone trying to become a songwriter that could really help them out. So that's how the book came about. And she put her money where her mouth is. She took it around New York and several people offered me book deals, unexpected, incredibly thrilling and I did the work. So I think the book is for such a great question. Certainly anyone that has a teeny interest in any kind of songwriting, I tell you how it happens, how we make the song stand out, but also anyone that maybe has any kind of dream and they're thinking, why is this so hard? Because it, I think it's just hard for everybody. And, you, and that's basically my story. And I wish I had a great answer for you. I don't. That's a, such a great question. But I'm no, very it's a good answer. But I, I would say, what did you? Here's a way to get into this question. Yeah. So much of the book, man, is about something that I think about all the time, which is: is it irresponsible to tell people to chase their dream? And what I tend to say to people is: you have to chase your dream if you have a dream that seems unrealistic, but the thing most people leave out when they say chase your dream is you have to chase your dream with incredible rigor. You have to be willing to work 10 times as hard to make the dream, impossible dream a reality. And that means not just knocking on doors. It means looking at the work itself and crushing yourself to make it better. It, it also means picking yourself up when you're rejected, right? And 
and I wonder if as you were writing this book and you were going through these experiences again, if you look at that young kid and you're like, how did he keep going? Yeah, you're exactly right. And people, a lot of people ask me about, oh, hey, you make a lot of money doing that. And I always wanted to say to them, I would be doing this if I wasn't making a dime. I do remember sitting in the kitchen and hooting the blowfish were on VH1. And my songwriting probably wasn't up to par yet, but I remember thinking, gosh, I bet you if I could write with those guys, I could have a hit because I was, you know, out in LA stuck at the corner of Brett Michaels' hairpiece and Eddie Vedder's flannel. You know, I love metal, but I can't play guitar like that. I love grunge. It changed the world, but I wasn't really angry like that. When I was real young in the Battle of the Bands in high school, I had so much confidence. I would have been like, you betcha I'm going to make it. But once I got to L.A. and the years all started going by, I'll be honest with you. I was like, wow, I, I wonder what's going to happen. This is this is taking a long time and it doesn't get easier. I've had a bunch of hits, but I still have to write the best song in town. Darius Rucker and Keith Urban aren't just sitting around waiting for a song from me. They're getting the best songs in town. No, I I know. I mean, I think my, I mean, my guess is just knowing how I parallel it to my own career. For sure. While it's true, of course, the, the next hit has to come. You got to get the next cut. You got to get in a room with the next person and make it magical. And, but I imagine though that 10 hits in and however many covers in, 40 covers in or whatever, I imagine that, um, that there's no longer a disconnect between your self-image and your image in the world. Meaning there's no longer there's no longer the question of am I crazy? Like you might be crazy in good ways, but you know what I mean. There's there's no longer am I a deluded person who's not really talented, right? That gets answered at a certain point, doesn't it? Absolutely. And then the song that people sometimes don't know the title when you say it, but they know it when you sing it. Uh, my first hit was you make me smile like the sun, fall out of it with Uncle Cracker, which by the way, we wrote, I knew it was a hit and it still st stayed on the shelf for like two years somewhere. Once that came on the radio, you're so right. I was like, I know what I'm doing. I, I knew this was a hit. So for certain, in, in a lot of songwriting rooms, I, I say in the book, it's like putting underwear on a kangaroo. These young bands are bouncing all over. I'm like, man, these guys have no idea what they're doing. I think I know what's catchy. I think I know what's a hit. And uh, to answer your question, no, I'm very, very confident about it now. And I, I, but I definitely would like an, another hit. But boy, it was fun writing the book because all my best songs are co-written. But the book I did by myself and my songs are about three minutes long because I want them to be hits. But the book didn't have a time limit. I'm just kind of leapfrogging. As you said over that, it was kind of like, oh, I've got this new box of crayons and there's no parents at the preschool. Yes. So it's not to, yes. not to throw on the walls. Going back to what you said real quick, I did it. Everyone does it in Nashville. You get to Nashville and you think, if I can write a hit with the people that are already having hits, I'll have a hit too. But it never happens like that. You find your own tribe and you rise together. And I, because there's so much value in the way that someone that is just writing songs, there's so much value in how they see the world. They're listening to different music than I am. They're probably listening to more current music. And you all just come up together. A great music publisher said, the freshmen always want to write with the seniors. And that's not to be negative or condescending. And I did it too. It's like, oh yeah, you have to find your people like Shane McAnally, who you interviewed. It's so easy to say his name now because he's so successful. But when I met him, he was sleeping on his sister's couch. He was about to move back to LA. He couldn't get anything going after 14 years in Nashville. Imagine that. But uh, That's hilarious. How often, and I'm really happy for him that he's doing so well right now and everything personally too, it seems from social media and all that, he seems great. 
So can I ask you, so you tell this great story about the two of you writing that song together that Kenny Chesney cut and that led to the Keith Urban, all that stuff. When you and Shane walk, like how often do you guys get on each other's calendars now? Now about, certainly not as much. I don't really know if he's writing as much or if he is, and I mean this in the best way. I don't know how, the, how to say the guy's name. Is it Niall Horan? Who's the guy from, from, from uh, One Direction? I don't know how to say yeah. his name. So Shane was writing with him the other day. There's, that guy can write with anyone in the world. And I said, oh, how'd that come about? And Shane said, he just messaged me on Instagram. I was like, you sure it wasn't spam? He goes, That's no, it was funny. going to him. So, and he deserves it. So I would say once every couple of months, but in the beginning, we were writing all the time. But, you know, he has a family. He had the TV show. And I, I certainly... But what I was going to ask you is when you get in a room together, when you've written a hit, like when you guys do show up in a room together, and if you get an artist in there or the third person... Is it a magical thing for you that you knew each other before that you did this together? Is it special in that way? Oh, absolutely. Because we laugh, we make jokes about each other. It's so, I always think like, wow, is this what it's like to be in a really famous band when you just start out together with nothing? Oh yeah, we joke and it's it's so fun to write, to get in a room with a couple of writers or Shane and I, and we laugh the whole time, but then come out of it with a great song. I mean, what what a life I have. It's incredible. And how many so, songs did you and Shane write that, that haven't gotten cut? Oh, a ton, a ton. Because one thing I learned about Nashville, man, it's a it's a full contact sport. So Shane and I don't write all the time now, but we were writing, you know, four or five days a week, tons and tons. And I don't know why different for girls or alone with you or sangria pops up. But for some reason, I'm sure Neil Young or Motley Crue, correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, I don't know. Maybe those guys write 10 songs and just put out an album. But in Nashville, you have to write, write, write. And then these songs pop up and you don't know where they're coming no, from. I, I mean, I've, I've, I don't know. Like, I know you kind of know, but I don't know if you know how deep into the songwriting Nashville world I am. But no. I'm super deep. <laughs> I, I, I write all the time. with I write songs all the time in, in Nashville. And I, I had a song cut on a big artist record and I don't he cut it and told me it's going to be on the record and I have no way of knowing man you know <laughs> and I've watched this whole experience really yeah. um up close can you talk about what a typical day is for you a day in the life of um, a successful country songwriter because, and how many, basically like how many rights do you have in a week or is there a day where it's just a recording day or how does a week lay out for you? Do you do two rights in a day? And then I, then I want to talk about preparation, but, but just first, just do a little bit about like, do you wake up? Do you journal? Do you meditate? Like, and then do you get, do you decide at time? Hey, it's a morning ride. I'm going to get coffee with the person I'm writing with. Like, just walk us through how that works. Great. And we'll we'll do that in a minute. You said the best thing, preparation, but we'll get to that. So I usually no, usually get coffee by myself. I, I call it no ballot insurance. <laughs> and so we usually start and everyone makes these dad everyone makes these dad jokes. Coffee is wait, sorry, coffee is no ballot insurance. That's yes. hilarious. That's <laughs> hilarious. See, I have good jokes. The other guys say all these dad jokes. I can't believe I'm gonna say it. We start at the crack of 11. So we started about 11. Um, usually it used to be in person. We still Zoom quite a bit. And then we all look in our phones. Hey, I have this idea. 
I have this idea. We, we talk and laugh for a while. If it's someone I don't know, hey, how'd you get your deal? Where are you from? This and that. We all talk. It goes very quick on Zoom. And then we write for two or three hours. Sometimes I, if the song isn't right, I try to get everyone to write a little bit more because a lot of people don't go back and fix songs. So I would say one song a day. But when I met Darius Rucker, we wrote a song. And this is really not my style. But before we signed off, I said, hey, I have another idea. Do you guys want to take 45 minutes and just see if we can knock it out? I tried to make it easy for everyone because they might have been like, oh, no, no, we can sit on this computer. But I'm so glad I did because that was Beers and Sunshine. The first song we wrote kind of was just like lost in the ether. So uh, so I think if everyone had the energy to write two songs a day, that would be good. But I usually only do that if we're kind of on fire or with them, with them, with an artist and it's very rare. I don't know if I'm ever going to see them again. What's the harm in it? We're on a giant rock spinning through outer space. I just push it, you know, like let's, let's write another song. And that's basically the typical day. And then I'm always. Well, how does it work though? Let's go a little more granular yeah. in this. So you sit there and you look at your phones cause you got some kind of an idea, perhaps a, a hook, they call it a hook book. Now they're digital hook books, right? Yeah. Where you're, you're looking at the, hey, I, you know, Jesus takes the wheel. Uh, and then, you know, someone says, oh, yeah, but let's, tw let's twist it in some way. Yes. How do you learn or talk a little bit about collaborating, meaning that subtle thing? Because you said, I try to get people to work harder. And I know what you mean because I've done a lot of these sessions. And there are people who, hey, man, we worked on the song for three hours. That's a finished song. Or there are other people who will say, we got a verse and a chorus, the beginnings of a pre, let's just, and then you're right, that song might never get written. You say you're gonna email back and forth and it might never get yeah. written. And sometimes so, it switches in the middle. I've learned, sorry to interrupt, but I've learned sometimes I'm writing a song and someone will say something else and someone will say, gosh, like a lyric in the second verse is a whole better idea for another song. That used to frustrate me, but now I just go with it because I've learned Sometimes those things can turn into a better song and you write it within one hour and the other song you've been jammed on for, for three hours. But I have a great answer to that as well. I used to, and some of the first titles are the best ones. I don't remember when we wrote Sangria for Blake Shelton. I don't remember any other titles that day when I wrote Different for Girls for Dirk Bentley with Shane. Uh, oh, I do think I had another title that day, but I'll, another thing I've learned is if you think there's a, a great title pops up, everyone's excited. Just hit the brakes for five or 10 minutes. Now I go around the room to make sure there's not another title that someone has that really might even be better. So once we have two or three titles or, or four, and we're all kind of like, I like that one, but I've learned to not maybe just jump at the first one that gets me excited because I mean, there could be the next one on someone's phone or their notebook could really could be Jesus take the wheel and we're about to write, you know, cold beers, hot women or something. Yes. You know? Right. <laughs> um, so that, that's it. You know, I, I say in the book, songs are like sausages. Uh, just enjoy them when they're done. Don't watch them being made. It doesn't sound very glamorous when you talk about writing a song, but I do like breaking it down because it, it's fun. Well, yeah. I, I mean, and talk about, you know, you say something in the book and it was really fascinating to me. You say, um, a pet peeve of yours is when a junior, a more junior writer shows up and they say, what do you got? And they don't come in with, here's a verse chorus. Here's another verse chorus. Here's an idea. Hey, I was working on a song with a friend of mine. Does this work? Want to add? And, and, uh, but some, I found some old school Nashville people who are very successful. Sometimes you'll show up with a bunch of ideas and they'll say, I like it better if it just happens magically in the room. We just start talking and then through our conversation. So how do you feel that stuff out? Because I know you, you come in prepared. So yes. 
But are you able to shift gears? Meaning if you go and you sit down with someone who's like, you know what, let's not bring our ideas. Let's, let's just talk and find what we're interested in. Are you, do you roll with that too? I do roll with that, but it's usually not as uh, planned out as that. And it doesn't happen a lot, but recently I've sat down with someone that this girl who I won't mention, I think she's 20 years old. She said, I'm all out of ideas. The first thing she said, and I said, I just said, you're about 20 years early to be out of ideas. So uh, that I would never come into a room with uh, a Keith Urban, John Bon Jovi, Darius Rucker, and just say, what do you got? I would be embarrassed. So when someone does that to me, I can't believe it. But also a lot of times when we're all talking to go with what you said, I will be listening to someone telling me their story and the girls will be, you know, just talking like this girl was heartbroken the other day. And she's like, I just want to write a song. It doesn't matter. I know she had tears in her eyes and she said, boys ain't shit. Now I didn't write a song called boys ain't shit, but the more she was talking, I kept thinking there's a title somewhere in here, which a lot of time people are talking with titles. I haven't been with many, you know, older super pro writers that say like, I don't want to hear any of your ideas today. I think they're probably relieved that someone has an idea, but of course, a lot of times we start from scratch. There's all these different combinations. I read a Paul McCartney interview and he said, every song I've written has come a different way. It's, which is wild. And do you still get excited if you're going to get to go write with someone and for the first time and you like their music and you've listened, do you, if you're going to get hooked up with a writer, do you know their work ahead of time? Do you like to listen or do you like to show up and see what happens? If it's someone that's just gotten a record deal or something, I try not to look their music up because they all say the same thing. The stuff online is my old style. It doesn't match me anymore. So definitely. But listen, man, I'll tell you all day long and you can tell him. I mean, I was so excited to write with Darius Rucker. If it's someone famous, of course I'm excited. And then if it's a big songwriter that I haven't written with yet, because there are several that I haven't written with yet. I'm really not in their group. Of course I would be excited. And once again, like you said, Brian, I come prepared because I imagine they get in a room and people are like, I'm going to have a hit now. I'm with Hillary Lindsay. I'm with uh, Dallas Davidson. Let me just, I'm with Sam Hutt. Let me just sit back. And- well, yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot because I have a, I've had a, a date to write with Brandy Clark for a year and it got moved like four different times. And I've been saving stuff and you said like, I've been saving stuff because so- and you mentioned it in your book that sometimes save a great idea for, for, a, for a great right. Yeah, I saved uh, different for girls for Shane. And the reason the story came, comes up, we keep talking about it. You and I keep mentioning it. Um, Gordy Sampson had the title, Jesus Take the Wheel. I don't think he'd had a hit yet, but he had on his calendar a few months in advance, Brett James and Hillary Lindsay, yes. two of the biggest writers. So he saved it for them. So yeah, I, I definitely do that as well. And of well. course they tell the story. Brett tells the story that like some of the people in the room didn't even recognize that it was a great title and they had to change it. And it was like a really weird thing. Yeah, that, no, and my, that's what keeps you in love with it, this mystery, the magic. And let me tell you something else. Some days, last thing I want to do in the world is write a song, but I've also learned showing up is 99% of it. I can't even count the days where I've left a right and said to myself under my breath, oh my gosh, I can't believe I almost canceled. Because I'd rather be at the mall. I'd rather be at the coffee place flirting with a girl, you know, but uh, so showing up is definitely, it just never gets easier, but it only feels like work the 10 minutes before you start. Once you're into it, it's like, you're just doing it, you know? I Yeah, for for sure. That, that makes sense I'm you're listening because you obviously know how to write. No, but how much do you, no, of course, man, um, 
as soon as you're in the flow of doing for me my work too, yeah, there are days I don't want to be working on a script, but then the truth is the for me, I'm not one of those people who's like I'm glad I have written. I don't like writing. Like when I'm in it, I'm so happy to be deep in it. But it's the getting start. It's getting in it that's hard for me. It right? is. It getting is. It's like going it. to the gym. Uh, the, uh, this trainer, and by the way, I don't work out much, but he said the hardest part is getting here. Just get here, and I'm like, oh, it's like writing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What What do you think though? Like, so okay, now you have all these songs that haven't been cut. I'm sure some of them are hit songs. How How do you manage? Because you obviously have twenty artists on your phone that you could text a song to and how do you manage uh they respond they don't quite respond they get it like how do you because your instinct is to go 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 push 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 so how do you kind of like calibrate when that's okay when you need to lay back like how do you think about all that as a professional Great, great question. I'm probably not as uh, pushy or as assertive as my personality or the book makes it out to be. There are people in town that will just hound people. It's just not my style. So I have a few emails. If I have a song I really believe in, or especially if my I'm with Sony Music and a great guy named Rusty Gaston heads it up. If he starts telling me this song is a smash because he doesn't say it about all of them, then I feel more confident and I send it out. But I don't like wait by my computer for a response. Like I probably did when I was 26 or whatever. I just send it out and see, and see what happens. And I try to just pick and pick and choose. Maybe this is the wrong way to look at it. I don't want Keith Urban. I'm being honest with you. I don't want Keith Urban to come walk into the street and say, Oh no, here's JT. Yes. And he's going to chase me with a new song because you know what? My publishers know his managers, know his mailman, know his, car fixer, whatever that's called, mechanic. So it's a big mixture. And it's such a great question. I've had several key, uh, Kenny Chesney cuts. I know his email, but he doesn't really know me. So I don't just email him out of the blue. But here's the flip side to that. So what? They listen to a song, they don't like it. So what? Boy, when you send one that they do like, everyone's going to think you're a hero. Oh, this guy's so brave. He emails songs out. I think there's a story where Chris Christopherson landed a helicopter on Johnny Cash's lawn or something. I mean, that's the way to pitch a song. My but favorite I, one is just the John Cougar, John Deere, that they just sent it to Keith and he just went like, yup, and he cut it like two days later and it was number yeah, yeah. one. That, yeah, that doesn't happen to me. He played it out that night. Like he heard it and then he played it on a benefit and then he recorded it and then it became the biggest song of the year. Like that, I love that shit. But what about totally. the thing now, of- Now with record executives or people on different, like I didn't overthink handing you, we actually never got to the story. I met you at a cat list really quick. Tell the story. At, I'm working at Tower Records. I was so naive to think, well, I'll work at a record store because the people that deliver the records must get them from the record company. They must know all the people. I'll get a job at a record store. I'll give my demo to everybody. And I did give it to everybody. And one day, I, I believe it was your credit card. Yeah, I saw your credit card. It said Brian Koppelman. I felt like mice were running through my stomach. It was. No, you know what it was? It was uh, I re when I read the book. Do you remember back then the A&R guys didn't have to use a credit card because we were all in that big book? Yeah, yeah, at the information booth. You're right. That's yeah. what it really was. It was that we were in the book and I could go, I'm charge these to the record company. And you probably saw my name in that. And you were like, and then you knew, you know. Yeah, but I, and I knew your name because I studied records. The Tracy Chapman record, which was unbelievable. 
a song that should be a hit again. Jesse paints a picture, Josh McCaddison. Yeah, Josh Caddison, yeah. And uh, so I, I just said, oh, I, I remember just saying, oh, you're Brian Koppelman. You mind if I give you a, a demo? And you were very, very kind about it. And then, um, so that's how we met. But I'm, 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 if I see someone that I know manages Keith Urban or Tim McGraw or someone, I'm like, hey, that, that guy has the artist's ear. I don't overthink approaching them because I could say, you don't know me, but I wrote all these songs. It gives me a little bit of a leverage. And they all say the same thing. I need a song like that for my artist. Then you send it to them. And you and don't, you don't hear, from them. hear from them. <laughs> and what about when you, uh, if you have an idea for a song and you think to yourself, you know, that would be good for Keith. I'm not going to, do you ever do the thing of, call, of texting one of those guys and saying, I think I have something. Can we get together? Like I have a chorus. And, and then try to get a write on with them? Or how does that work? Or do you wait yeah. for them to reach out to you? How does that work? No, I've emailed, hey, I've got a couple ideas. I, I would love to get together. And then you wait for them to respond. And it doesn't happen that much. But I also do that with other really big songwriters because everyone in town wants to write with a very small group of people. And I'll say, hey, I have this idea. Here's how it goes. What do you think of this? And they're like, dude, do you have next Tuesday open? That's another thing that I... I, I I've all, you know, I know people that are still living in their parents' basement that are like, oh, I'd never do that. Someone's going to steal my song. It's like, come on, man. It's just like, you got to show people your ideas. And by the way, going back, Brandy Clark is not only so talented, she's so incredibly sweet and such a great lyricist. You and her are going to be gangbusters. I can't wait. Now we've talked and stuff and we're doing it. Uh, but I really have, because my favorite story about this is like my favorite country song of the last however many years is High Cost of Living. And I just love, you know, the high cost of living ain't nothing like the cost of living high. And I always figured Jamie had the line because it's so that the song that identifies Jamie, but he didn't. That was someone had the idea. And the guy he wrote it with, like, carried that around for a year and a half till he got in a room with Jamie Johnson. And then he was like, I have this line. And I just love the discipline because, I mean, if I had an idea like the high cost of living ain't nothing like the cost of living, I, I'd tell everybody I ever met. You know Exactly, I mean? exactly, exactly. Totally. I would never have yeah. the discipline totally. to wait. And I'm not, I'm not like hoarding 20 Grammy winning ideas. I mean, I have a couple I'm saving, but if, if you get jammed up in a write, I'm usually like, hey, this is that. You also asked me about co-writing, I think, a few minutes ago. It's incredible how you can have a title that you might think is so-so or someone else has a title they think is so-so and you see it in a totally different light and you're like, wait, hold the phone. I know exactly what to do with that. Are you kidding me? And then, so it's, it, that's what's great about co-writing uh, because you know, I mean, you, you co-write your scripts, right? Some of them. Yeah, Dave and I yeah. write everything together. I mean, we write the big sections of them alone, but they're all co-written. Yes. So great. You know, I mean, one movie, I wrote one movie alone that we made, but we directed it together. But yeah. um, but basically, yeah, we we write everything together. Um, although in my new book, Party Like a Rockstar, I did not need a ghostwriter. <laughs> no, you wrote the book. You you wrote the book yourself. Absolutely. Most people want to write a book, and they feel like having to complete something that long is very daunting to them. What, what did you, how did you, and you know, songs are three minutes. Like how, how did you schedule yourself so that you, you could do it every day around your songwriting? What was it like? That's such a great question. So there was nobody looking over my shoulder or anyone saying, how's the book coming? So that was interesting. I just was really self-motivated and it, I really miss 
how much time the book took up. I started it before it took up in my life. I started it before the quarantine, but when the quarantine hit, I was like, if I'm in a great mood, I'm going to jump on work on the book for a little while. If I was bored when I started traveling again, I'd be on an airplane and I would think like, oh gosh, let me open the computer. I can work on the book. Or if I was you know, nervous that a girl I like isn't calling me back and I'm kind of like pacing around. I'm like, you know what? Let me work on the book to distract me. You know, obviously I don't have to wait for girls to call me back now because the book's out. But uh, so any any mood I was in, I could work on the book. And listen, man, I procrastinate. I never did my homework in high school, but I've learned, you know, listen, they gave me a book deal. People are counting on me. I have these stories. Just sit down and, and write it. And it was almost like playing a video game. Once I started typing or saying it into a voice note, I would look up at the clock and two or three hours had gone by. So, and I didn't find it that daunting because I didn't think it was going to be that long. It's not a long book. And I had a great team. I'm signed to a place called 12 Books. They had great, They're a great company. Yeah. Great editors. I had Dana Perino cheering me on from the sidelines. So it wasn't that daunting, but what was more daunting was when they said, hey, you have got to stop writing because I kept sending changes. And they said, every author does this, but hey, this is going to print, you can't keep changing it. But then I did the audio book, Brian, last week. And I very casually said, I have a better detail. Can I change this? And the producers of the audio book were like, oh yeah, change whatever you want. And I was like, Woo! Oh, that's awesome. People get the audio book too. And, and uh, apparently so- Denzel Washington was unavailable. I thought you were gonna call him for me, Brian, jeez. jeez. How many, and Mr. Washington, I'm, I, all I wanna do is work with him someday. Uh, how, uh, how often do you write a song? So. As an artist, when you were a young person, these songs were so personal and so connected to your own experience. And you now are able to take your feelings and put them into these songs that are crafted songs. But do you ever pick up the guitar and just write for yourself now? Absolutely. And from a funny ego standpoint, I I daydream about, gosh, wouldn't it be great to have a Kenny Chesney song that I... Or, or any, or a Carrie Underwood song or an Adele song that you wrote all by yourself. But of course, when you have a hit, if you're just sitting here alone with no one to call, that would probably be not fun. But it takes a lot longer to write a song by myself because I'm thinking, is this lyric good enough? Is this melody good enough? So I still write by myself. I love it. But it takes a lot longer. And I certainly don't do it every day. And do you demo yourself? Do you demo them yourself? Do you, how do you, what do you do for that? How do you get your songs into the world? Yeah. So for those of you outside of Nashville, Nashville has really changed in the last few years. There's what we call track guys, but there's a lot of girls as well. You write with a person who has all sorts of music on their computer. Brian knows this. And then you're writing the lyrics and melody over these different beds of music that they have prepared. Now, I don't have that talent. I just write on an acoustic guitar. But of course, the best musicians in the world are here. So I'll book a studio session and I'll just record some songs by myself. I still do that a lot with my co-writers. But when I write a song by myself, I definitely have to go and get someone to record it. If I if I had people like Brian, I guarantee you, if I sent you a song on my phone, played on acoustic guitar, I guarantee you, you would know if it was a hit or not. But I don't know if a lot of people in town do. I've heard that people need it to, they want to hear something that sounds like it's already on the radio. And they're like, oh, I get where this is coming I from. I mean, and sometimes you can just hear a guitar vocal and you know anyone in town, you know, occasionally you'll hear a guitar vocal and it'll just be like, well, that's. You know, yeah. Well, that that's a hit. And totally do you? Uh, how often do you mix in with new people to write with? How often do you ask your publisher, "Hey, put me with new people"? And how often are you writing with people that you're 
normally riding with and how do you balance that stuff yeah the world is the world is is changing by by the minute because so many people and i don't really even know how tiktok works but i'm with new people all the time because there's all these tiktok you know phenomenons so it's about half and half i i kind of prefer to write with my buddies and everyone i know but i'm also smart enough to have learned you you never know who's going to have the next hit you're going to spend two or three hours with someone you might have song of the year so there's so many new people that i'm writing with but it's but it's mainly people who have had a song that was recently a hit that either they're singing or that someone else put out. It's usually not brand new people just to town. I so mean, 95% I, of the time you're writing with an artist, not a song, a fellow songwriter. Only. Maybe, a, maybe a little less, 70, 75. I don't know why I'm splitting hairs, but probably like- No, I wanna know. Like, so 75% of the time it's with an artist who's got a deal. And 25% of the time, maybe you and some songwriters will get together. Yeah, or maybe about half and half, but, but daily, by the minute it's changing, I look at my, we keep talking about calendars for those of you listening, our publishers do our calendar and hook us up with people to write with. But more and more, I'm looking at my calendar. I say, I don't know who that person is. Let me look them up. But I trust my publisher to get me in rooms with people that have a little bit of fire burning. But I'd say it's getting about 60, 60, like 60, 40. And are you still doing the songwriter shows? Like, do you love doing the songwriter shows oh, still? Oh, I love it because one thing we keep skipping is we, now I say I always wanted to be a songwriter, but I wanted to be Kiss, David Lee Roth. I wanted to be, you know, a rock star. And that changed in me once I heard songs I'd written on the radio, it kind of calmed that bug. But I love doing the songwriter shows. Uh, I'm doing two here in Nashville when the book uh, comes out, when the book is out, already sold out, a couple in Michigan. Come some in Florida benefits for St. Jude out in Arizona. Are, is there a New York date? Do you have a New York date? No, but um, when one pops up, I'll definitely. Uh, I'm you know, coming out for sure. Well, you know, after you had your first hit, smile, you did that. Now I can record. sell the book at the. Sorry, now I can sell the book at the shows. This is fantastic. <laughs> when you had yet when you had your first hit, smile, but then you did because I remember JT reaching out to you. I was so excited. I'll say, you know. There were a couple of people that I signed because I recognized that their talent was so great as songwriters. In the book, you mentioned David Gray, but also Five for Fighting, John Andrasik. You know, uh, I made his first album, and of course, it wasn't a hit at all. And then, uh, then you know, uh, I left the music business, and his next record was the, the most played song of the year the next year, you know, 100 years. And, um, and Michael McDermott as well. Who yeah, and Michael. And uh, there are so many of these gr great songwriters. And... It was very painful, you know. It was. I would say I kept getting I, my heart would would would. My heart would kind of break for when somebody's record, you know, with John Andrasik or with Michael, the albums came out. For for you and I, I, I remember being so sad about it. And you know, part of the problem was technology was different then, and like if someone's voice was slightly different, or if their voice, if singing on key was, you know, like. It, two years later, that wasn't an issue. And what I was going to say to you is I remember calling Joe Hardy, who passed away three years ago, one of my best, best, best friends. And, oh, yeah. And, and, and I talked to him every week forever since that, you know, always. But I remember when Love in America was on the radio. I heard it on the radio and I heard your voice. And I got so excited. Because I was like, look at fucking JT, man. He just By the way, that wouldn't. was a smash. That should have been a bigger hit, but it got it got a little bit. It was on the radio. And yeah, yeah. I remember hearing your voice on the radio and and thinking like he didn't stop. And like, yeah. what what do you think it would, I, you know, 
for someone listening, I have, I have a couple more questions. But one is sort of in the most honest way you can, uh, like, dude, you were rejected. You were told no. You you were living on floors. Your parents were mad at you for being a wet. Like, you had every reason to quit. And the world was not telling you that you were great. You know, you went on the road with a famous rock star for two years who was kind of an abusive dick uh, and, and got you... You know, you tell the story hilariously in the book, but I mean, <laughs> you were like mocked in front of 50,000 people or whatever. And then you met up with like, what the fuck kept you going, JT, uh, chasing this impossible ambition of yours? Well, a couple things I would take. So after one of the great things about coming out of the EMI deal with you is that uh because of you and other people, you know, I had that big advance. So I had money in the bank, so I didn't have to go back to the record store. And I would just keep writing and I would take breathers. And I met a really wild rock star in the book. We don't say his name three times uh, because he'll appear in a puff of smoke. So we don't want that. We call him the man in the sequin pajamas. I mean, it's very clear. In re- I, when I was reading the book, I just immediately texted you and I was like, is it this guy? I used his real name, not his stage name. So- so I went around the world with him, staying in Ritz Carlton's, being in sold out arenas, but not being on the stage. And then I met Lincoln Park and they were so low maintenance and so great to me. They started letting me open up for them. So to answer your question, being really honest, I think I would take these breathers like I'm going to forget kind of about that for the moment. But it was just always like an itch you can't scratch or like a pebble in my shoe or a bill you can't pay. The ambition was always there, but I would take these breathers, I think, to recharge my battery. And after I lost the EMI deal, someone told me once, uh, once you're in the club, you'll always be in the club. And I think that meant there were always people that would come behind and encourage me, whether it was uh, Brian Brinkerhoff, who I made a record with, we got signed to Atlantic, they didn't put the record out either. And then you would stay in touch with me. And then I met a great guy named Jonathan Daniel. And he would just tell me, listen, Bitterness doesn't work in the record business and it doesn't work in romantic relationships. You know, you have to don't be bitter. You have to keep going. And I would just always there were these little pieces of people I would sign my first publishing writing deal. I got dropped from that. And then very quickly after I wrote Somewhere With You and Smile, Uncle Cracker, and the Kenny Chesney song. There were just these little pieces of people that would believe in me and keep pushing me. So I always guess I, I always had little uh, life wraps along the way that would that would keep me going. Does that make sense? It does make sense, though. It's yeah. still I still don't. I, there's still something very special inside you that made you know this was kind of like your destiny. I think, and I I've often wondered if you know. So in the book, you do this great thing. It's just you talk about that you were adopted. You talk about how your family is your family, and when you first talk about your biological father, you don't name him by his professional name. And you don't name him until midway through the book, really, uh, by his professional name. And he was he was a great guy. Uh, and a man of uh, yours, for sure. And can I just say really quick, I was adopted. I never had a yearning, a loneliness. I would tell girls, I think my real dad's David Lee Roth, you know, just to try to make right. out. I met my biological mother, sweet woman. I knew she wasn't lying. She said to me on the phone, we've been talking for a couple months. She said to me on the phone, I want to tell you about your real father. He's not like other people. And Brian knows the story. And I, I didn't know what that meant. It kind of, I thought it was a little bit of a red flag, maybe. She said, no, no, he's an actor. He's on the show Cheers. And I'd been, I'd seen Cheers for years. And Brian 
my brain started scanning the cast of Cheers. I'll never forget it. I thinking of someone that might look like me. I yelled to my roommates in LA, I'm rich. My biological father is Ted Danson. Yeah, hilarious. Hilarious. No, no, no. Jay Thomas. And you want to talk about the Twilight Zone theme starting. I outside of my apartment in Hollywood on a five-story building was Jay Thomas's head on the body of a woman because he was a big DJ at that time in LA. I had met him at the record store. Once again, my parents never knew who he was. I never knew who he was. Mr. Holland's Opus was a movie that was out. I'd already seen it. You want to just talk about, it's such a bad TV movie. Jay Thomas should have starred in it. Well, for people who, that's hilarious. For people who don't (laughs) know, because with years ago, Jay Thomas, everybody who listens to this probably would know him as the guy who Letterman had throw the football at the Christmas tree uh, on the Christmas show with Darlene Love every year. And he would tell this incredible story about getting high and getting in this fucked up car. And uh, it's an amazing story. Yeah. Um, and so uh, yeah, met, of course, sorry. no, of course I'd met Jay many times over my life and thought the world of him. And, and the, the story you tell about the two of you is, um, is beautiful actually that you were able to fold in and you have other younger brothers now because of that family and, and all that stuff. So it does feel like you, in a way, a lot I of may this- have his ambition. I may have his ambition in me, even though he said Bob Dylan was a moron. The Beatles were hippie freaks. Elvis was a thief of black music. Jay Thomas said to me, I'm the biggest DJ in the world. If a packet of cocaine or money doesn't come with the record, I ain't playing it. I That's hate hilarious. Music. So he hated music. But boy, did he have ambition to be in the entertainment business. And I'm sure I, I had some of that in me, I think. Is, my, is that where you're going, maybe? Because I wonder. Happened. Yeah, no, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. All right, l- lastly, can you talk about, because I think it's such a beautiful thing. Yeah. And I, it's something I'd never heard of. Can you talk about what it is like to have what they call a number one record party in Nashville? Okay, so when you get a number one song in Nashville, I mean, I'm getting excited like a kid on Christmas, just thinking about having one, if I, you know, whatever the next one may be, God willing. When you get a number one song in Nashville, a number one song on the radio, they throw a party and the artist that's singing it will come and all of them are different. And you can invite all of your friends, all of your family. So imagine... Everyone in the room, there were hundreds of people in the room when I had the one for Somewhere With You with Kenny Chesney. And even in Nashville, no one had ever been that close to Kenny Chesney. So my friends, my family, you're all there. Everyone makes speeches. You get gold records. I've got the Sangria one behind me. The Keith Urban one was incredibly special because he had a big press conference. He and I sitting next to each other. I felt like, you know, I was he was the president and I was the vice president. His wife, Nicole Kidman, was there. I mean, you can't imagine how starstruck everyone is. And then Keith played the song somewhere in my car on an acoustic with a cello player. I'm just standing there. I don't even know what surreal means exactly, but I think that's it. And I'll never forget though. I see a bodyguard who's like twice as big as Gronk slicing across his throat, staring at me. I'm like, what's this guy's problem? And he looks over and my brother Lance who goes by his Native American name, Dances with Vodka. He's got his arm around Nicole Kidman. He's spilling his beer. He's like, I went to Michigan State. You got to come there. We throw big parties. He hasn't been to Michigan State in 20 years. So it's the most exciting thing. And I hope everyone that's a songwriter 
gets to experience it. And I believe they can. I've done this. Truly, I believe anybody can do it. And Brian, maybe I'll have one with you. So that's what the number one party is like. Yeah. And by the way, my gold, my, my gold albums are hanging up by my birth certificate, which is an apology from a condom company. Uh, it's very, very heartfelt to have that. Jesus Christ. When you, when, when you say that uh, you don't know Kenny Chesney, really, can you explain that for people who, so, so Kenny Chesney records your first hit record and he's recorded another song of yours. You went to a number one party and sh but like, w explain how that, how that works. Does he say like, thanks for the song? Do you shake hands? Do you communicate? But w when you say you don't know him, I, it seems to a civilian, it seems like, well, God, he sang your song. You must've come to his concert and stand in the wings and all yeah. high five each other. But no, I huh? Yeah, no, but he but he is very nice. Uh, the last album he put out, I've been fortunate enough. He's recorded a few I know you. songs. Now, I wasn't at this gathering, but the last album he put out, he invited a bunch of the writers over to his house during the quarantine, and they all Zoomed uh, playing all the songs, which I thought to myself, I'm not invited. My song's probably not going to be the single. <laughs> but he's very kind. You no, know, the number one party. We should Did you write that song with him, though? Because I thought that last album, he got a bunch of people who had written songs in the past to write songs for this record. Yeah, he did, but there were a lot of outside songs. There's a great song on there called Wasted that he didn't write, Knowing You, which is up for- Streets to me is, I mean, you, you didn't write Streets, but I think Streets is no. a song you could have written. It's perfect. It's, it's incredible, yeah. yeah. No, Kenny Chesney, that's why he's a superstar. He can write all day long, but he goes and finds songs. So at the number one party, we meet, and I'm like, this is very, this is fantastic. And everyone's cameras are flashing. Everyone's got their phone out. He gives a great speech, but no, then he was, he was just kind of, right out the door. And he's one of those guys I've, uh, if I ever see him around, I'll say, Hey, I'm JT, which I haven't yet. Do you, uh, have, you know, give me your email. I'm not going to send you any funny memes. I'll, I'll send you songs, but no, I, I don't really know him at all. And, you know, maybe it's good. Maybe somewhere down, you know, maybe he thinks I'm a sparkly, you know, songwriter. You know? Is it a thrill for you each time you get a cut still and the process, do you track it? Like, so when you hear, Hey, they're cutting the song, like, because I've heard that you sometimes don't know your songs on the record till really late in the game. Is that true? Absolutely. And there's other people in town that know all this information and I don't know where they get it, but it's not what drives me. Some songwriters wake up in the morning, they're on the computer, who's doing this, who's doing that, what's on the chart. That kind of clogs my brain up a bit. I just try to write songs. And of course, people say to me, hey, this is what's happening. Case in point, a big memo went out all over town in big block letters to everyone's email. Blake Shelton is I literally the numbers were as big as a, I mean, the letters were as big as a stop sign. Blake Shelton is not recording drinking. songs. no drinking songs. Yep. And then what happens? We write a song called Sangria. Thankfully, we weren't thinking of Blake because we wouldn't have written it. And then he ends up recording a drinking song called Sangria. So personally, I try not to uh, follow all that kind of stuff. But to answer your question, a lot of people don't know this. Kenny Chesney recorded the song Sangria. He's a very smart person. He decided at the last minute it wasn't for him. I remember being a little bit bummed out, but then Blake Shelton ended up recording it and putting it out. So it changes all the time. Okay, but wait, we got to go a little further than that for yeah. a second. Because when you say yeah. you were a little bummed out, and maybe this is the key to why. So I think I would, if I heard Kenny Chesney was singing another song of mine and I'd written it and I knew Sangria was a hit, and I heard he was recording it. When I got the phone call, was, so how do you find recorded. out? It was recorded. You, right, so he records it. And you don't hear it yet, right? They don't send it to you. So how do you hear 
he's not putting it on the record. Like, does someone call you or email you? Like, what happens? No, I think I think I went down to Target and it wasn't on the record. No, I, oh, that's when terrible. I say a little, yeah, yeah. When I say a little bummed out, let me be real honest. Your stomach kind of drops for a second, but I've learned like a Jedi to remind myself, JT, you cannot control this. You cannot control this. You have to take a deep breath and just keep rocking along. And then, and then uh, uh, no drinking songs for Blake Shelton, but his producer, Scott Hendricks, heard it and your lips taste like sangria, kept ringing in his head. So he said, man, we got to record this. I don't think this is in the book. When it went number one, Blake Shelton has a number one party. I'd never met him before. He came up, he folded his arms and he said to me, man, nice to meet you. He said, I heard today from a DJ that Kenny Chesney recorded Sangria. Is that true? I said, it is. And Blake Shelton said to me, and I quote, he said, I'm glad I didn't know that because you know how we are. And he pointed at his head. He said, I would have thought there was something wrong with the song. I wouldn't have recorded it either. Oh my God, right. And I said, well, I'm sure I'm fucking glad you didn't hear it either. <laughs> Excuse right. my language to all the people down South. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, so yeah. You could have just caught yourself a bunch of co-writes by cursing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, so you can't control it and you just have to keep plugging away. Now, listen, I wrote a song with uh, uh, Darius Rucker that I loved called My Masterpiece. It was his new single. It fell off the chart. No one really got a chance to hear it. It was a follow up to Beers and Sunshine. But I was in New York recently when I found out they pulled it from radio. And yeah, man, I was I was bummed out for a few hours. But I just said, you know what, I'm going to go get some sushi. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've survived COVID. Well, there's a song. I mean, this, that, this whole thing is so confusing to me. I mean, I, <laughs> I but the, certain parts of it, because of I the just way wanted that, to let you know, I just wanted to say, I'm not going to pretend it didn't make me sad, but it only lasted a few hours, you know? Yes. And look, you got another cut, right? Whether it goes on the album or not, you got another cut, another song that went to radio. And yeah. it's another example of your gift and your ability to, to, to do this. But you know, there's a song that Darius has recorded on his next record uh, that I think is like the single best song he's ever written and recorded. And I'd heard that maybe the label doesn't think it's a single and it's killing me. But the point is, it seems like there's so much you can't control and uh, so that you would have to because it might not even be the artist who doesn't want to record the song. It might be their A&R person. It might be their record label saying this isn't where we want to market the artist. And it seems in country music that unless you're a super superstar, you still are giving a lot of control over to other people, right? Absolutely. And somewhere with you that Kenny put out, that song, we demoed it up and uh, played it for everyone for almost two years. Everyone said, this isn't a country song. It has too much fast singing in it, this and that. Everyone passed on it. Some people liked it. But then Kenny Chesney was already a superstar when he decided to record it. It was just like everyone got out of his way. And, you know, Kenny Chesney, you don't become a superstar by accident, I don't think. And he knew that it was something different for his audience's ears. Now, when you hear it, it doesn't seem that different. But at the time, so to answer, to agree with you, Brian, he had the power to say, this is the kind of song I'm putting out. And it goes back to goes back to if Shane and I wrote a song about here's my cowboy hat or here's my tractor. I'm from Detroit. You know, camping to me is a, a hairdryer in a hotel. You know, right. I want to live in New York City. So it's two things. You don't have any control over it. And also 
be yourself when you're writing a song because that's what will really stand out. Anyone trying to write a fake country song, country fans are smart and it has to be authentic. Whether it's about good. What are your ambitions now, man? Like, what do you want the next five years to, to be like for you? The very unexpected thrill of having this book out. I really hope people buy the book and love it. But also, I love hearing songs I've written on the radio. And I love being in Nashville. And I just want to continue writing songs. I guess I would love to discover someone who was a great writer that might not have a deal yet, which goes against what I say, people handing me CDs. But I haven't met anyone that's great yet that doesn't already have some sort of writing deal. But I just, listen, man, I love hearing songs I've written playing through the radio and I love doing these songwriter shows. So I think the next five years, the, the same thing. Good, man. Well, I love seeing all the number one certificates behind you, most played song and all that stuff. Yep. And uh, I'm so glad we got to reconnect and uh, sorry again that uh, you got dropped from the label and I couldn't do anything to stop it. And yeah. uh, I've always felt bad about it. It, it. Changed, um, no, it, it changed, it, it changed my life in the best way. You, you, I was as fun as I was, as much fun as I was having at tower records, I, I was, being suffocated by my own dreams and you broke me out of that. I had, I did learn a lesson, you know, I, I learned this lesson from you and, and, and I was saying it, it's a really good one, which is it's really hard to learn when you're in your twenties doing business that delivering the bad news is really an important thing to do. And I think part of what you write about in the book is you had a hard time reaching me for a few months. What was going on was me trying to figure out how to get the record released. But, but what somebody should do in that situation that I was in, and the thing that I do feel really bad about is I should have called you and said in a very direct way, I'm having a problem here. I'm not sure what's going to happen. You should know that uh, I'm, we're trying, but you may have a problem. So that you at least could have wrapped your arms around it and not felt like, well, why, why am I not getting anyone's response? And exactly. and so, you know, that that is something that I think if, you know, learning how to deliver bad news and sort of stepping up to do that is like an important thing that I think people do learn throughout their 20s. And it's it never too soon to learn that. Exactly. And listen, man, that's why I'm a songwriter. It's it's cheaper than therapy. I'm not innocent here. The hard, I mean, the hardest thing I've ever had to do to this day is call up maybe a girl and say, hey, I'm break, I need to break up or something. It's not easy. Rejection is not easy. And also breaking up with someone. And man, there, there's no hard feelings. I watch every movie you put out and every show you put out the day it comes out and it's i'm just so glad that we have the internet now to to communicate and i know me Jay too i mean i'm glad that we were never out of touch man i am and I, and i feel like you know uh look all i hope is that i can get on your songwriting calendar that's it yeah, yeah you can you can and thanks man and when jay thomas was in those plays the woody allen play years ago you were the first person to email me you're like i saw your dad in the paper how are you and and man people really respect you one of the biggest smartest guys i've ever met in the in the music business, uh, Jonathan Daniel, who, you know, manages Train, Fall Out Boy, Sia, all of these people, Miley Cyrus, Green Day. He said to me, man, if you still know Brian, you absolutely have to do his podcast. It says it's one of the most popular. And I said, man, I'll try to get on it. So thank you for having me on. JT, it's my app. So I asked you to do this for like the last 10, five, I've asked you to do it since I started the podcast. You were like, yeah, you let's know, wait till I have something. I'm writing a book. I'm writing a book until I have some. But thank you so much. And I know you've given me shout outs on other podcasts. Man, I appreciate it. And I can't wait to see you as right, the JT. world changes. Take care of yourself, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. Be well. Everybody, you can find JT. Uh, he's not really on social media that much. Uh, are oh, you, the, are book, you, the book. 
the book, Party Like a Rockstar. Go get the book. It's out in stores. Uh, what's the date of release? What's the date the book's out? February 22nd. And the good news is you can get it anywhere books are sold. It's a real book. It's yeah. a real book. And I'll tell you, it's really so damned entertaining. And you get to read about me uh, ghosting somebody. It's horrible. But uh, I read it. And other than the fact that the JT compressed the timeline in a way that didn't really allow for just how hard we tried, uh, everything he says is true. And uh, you can find JT. Are you on Twitter now, JT, or not? Like, can people yeah, find a, you? Yeah, it's at, yeah, at JTX Rockstar. All the, cool name, all the cool names were taken. <laughs> JTX Rockstar. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks so Bye. Much.